The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good evening and um, welcome back. And uh, perhaps uh, we could also start this week with uh, some questions or comments you have. Uh, those of you who have been doing loving-kindness practice uh, in between the classes, if you have anything you would like to bring up or ask, or um, this is a good time to do that as people are still coming in. Yes, please. I was just wondering how you can do loving kindness when you're gardening, because I always feel like a murderer when I'm gardening. <laughs> how can you do loving kindness when you're gardening? The um, well, there's uh, there's uh, obvious murder going on in the garden if you are, you know, killing the snails or the gophers, and there's the much less obvious murder. Not murder goes on it's not, because it's not intentional, but uh, killing that goes on when um, you blink your eyes and there's, you know, all these bacteria there that get smothered each time, you know. <laughs> or your mouth, you know, there's life and death going on all the time there. And um, so same thing in the garden, right? You know, you put your shovel in the, in the, in the garden and there's, you know, there's no intention, but, uh, it, you know, there's all these little life forms there that somehow get disrupted and some die. They come to the surface, they dry out. So... You know, anybody who thinks about these things has to figure out the ethics of that for themselves and figure out what the trade-off is or what seems appropriate for them. Um, and some people will avoid any kind of gardening at all. Uh, Buddhist monastics, monks and nuns in, Theravada, in Thailand, for example, uh, will avoid any kind of gardening whatsoever except, um, you know, really anything because they don't want to be involved in any kind of damaging of life. But it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit odd because then they just let other people do the gardening and eat the, and eat their food. So, you know, what's that about? And um, the um, so you have to make that decision. So, are you talking about the subtle dying that goes on? Or are you talking about the obvious well, ones, the like gophers and the snails? Taking out plants and because we we really um, it's really um, subjective. What is what is a weed and what's not a weed? And I feel like I'm just like oh, that way. Oh, so, in, so in Buddhism, the feeling is that the plants are not sentient in, in the same kind of way as an as a, uh, animate uh, life is. So, I mean, so for example, like a bug or an insect or a gopher, they don't have, uh, plants don't have the same nervous system. And so the ethics around that is very different uh, because uh, plants can uh, neither be happy nor suffer. So to say, may you be happy to a plant, I mean, you know, you can say, may you grow well, uh, so I think that that's kind of usually in Buddhism that's exempted from any concern like that. Now some people feel a kind of uh, kind of uh, identification or closeness with plants, so they have to sort that out for themselves. And uh, I know that I was a gardener in the monastery, and I loved it. Um, I was kind of inefficient because um, uh, what I liked most doing was to going around in the morning, uh, first thing, and just kind of looking at all the plants. It kind of had this, had this kind of warm paternal feeling for every plant. Just look at it and love it and just appreciate it. And go on to the next one, see what, what it changed overnight and look at it. And, and I would never get, get around to the work because I just loved, it felt so good just to go around and have this loving feeling for each of the plants and everything. And, you know, I was in the monastery. I'd been do, I was doing a lot of meditation. I was pretty still and quiet and very open and 
So it was very easy to have that kind of feeling for the plants. Um, so it's kind of loving kindness, you know, wishing them well, putting water on them and fertilizing them and, you know, caring them. So that's nice. And then you have to eat them, <laughs> so some of them at least. And so is that betraying, betraying them, betraying your love, you know? I've been loving you so carefully for so long and now I'm just yanking you out of the ground. But I, when, I was, you know, when I was a gardener, I would, feel, I would think about the people I was feeding. You know, I felt so good and happy that here I was going to have this food, homegrown, and I would offer it to the other people in the monastery and be cooked. And so, you know, I never had a problem with the uh, loving kindness in the plants. I felt this warm feeling, very nice feeling for it all. Um, I had an issue around the gophers. And, uh, and in the monastery, it was left to each gardener to decide for him or herself what to do about the gophers. And um, so it was my decision... Uh, and so I, I decided that um, there was a, it was a um, trade-off between the life of the garden and the food that it made for the people in the monastery and the life of the gopher. And so I decided that, uh, that in that trade-off, it was more valuable to the life of the garden, what the garden brought into the world. And um, so I decided to have traps for the gophers. Um, I'm not saying that's the right thing. I don't know if I'd do that again now, but when I was, I was t- 25 then, and that's the decision I made. So are there questions about the practice? Especially maybe last week's instructions on the neutral people. But um, <clears throat> I don't think this is especially relevant to any particular group, but sometimes the practice seems fraudulent. Fraudulent? Fraudulent. And it's, it seems fraudulent because at the time that I'm wishing these things, I know perfectly well that nothing will happen. In other words, if I'm wishing a, a person who is terminally ill to be well, or someone who is uh, um, sick, and I, I say it has special relevance because three of my friends have died within the last couple of weeks, couple of months. So I, I knew that they would never. I knew they had the kind of illness that, would, that from which they would not recover. So my wishing them well seemed um, wasteful or inappropriate or uh, since I knew that, of course, I knew that my wishing isn't going to well, you create anything. Yeah. So but you, it, felt, it felt fraudulent to me. So you're fraudulent because you're wishing them well when they were never going to get well. Yeah. Well, there's different ways of being well. <coughs> and so there's a distinction that people make between... Um, um, between um, curing and healing. And there are people who never get cured, they end up dying, but in the process of their dying they get healed. And what they mean healed is they get healed psychologically or spiritually, heartfully. And there are people who spend a whole life in tremendous conflict and fear and anger and aversion to death, to life, to people, and they're broken, broken-hearted people. And, um, and they know they're going to die, but they get healed in the process of their last days, last months, and, uh, and they die at peace or die resolved with certain issues. And so when you wish someone well who's dying, you, you don't wish them, you know, may you get up and start dancing the samba again or something. You know, you, you, you wish them well and you hope that somehow that process of dying, um, that uh, they get healed this kind of inner way, that uh, they die as peacefully and happily as possible. And um, there's plenty of people who... Um, uh, go through a very difficult process of dying only to get through it 
and find that in the last period before they die, they find a very profound peace because they've resolved something or dealt with something. A story I like to tell from a member of our community that died many years ago. He, um, he, uh, the thing he was most afraid of in his life was to get cancer. And he, um, seemingly most afraid of, and he was very anxious, spent his whole life being anxious. I knew him as being an anxious man. So he got cancer. And, um, and then at some point, uh, not because he was afraid of it, but he's, you know, then he got the cancer. And, and then um, at some point it was clear he was going to die. And when it was clear he was going to die, the thing he was afraid of, he didn't have to be afraid of anymore. <laughs> and uh, it was remarkable to see the transformation. And his anxiety, his fear, his timidity disappeared. And uh, he entered that last period of his life with tremendous grace and courage and strength and peace. And it was really something to see. So does that answer your question? Over here. <clears throat> I've been having a little bit of a problem with the word, with the expression, may you be happy. Because for me, the happiness seems like a very superficial feeling. And also, I mean, when I think about certain sociopaths in our society, I certainly don't want them to be happy. I, I don't want them to be well. And I want it to be free of uh, many things, but I don't want happiness in the narrow sense because they do horrible things when they're happy sometimes. So for me, I, I, I've been trying to look, for, I've been using other things to replace happiness because to me it's not a term that seems to fit what I want to, what I'm trying to achieve. Great. That's a great, great that you bring that up. And um, the, um, the, the, the phrases that I've been giving you are more or less the classical phrases, semi, you know, or modern renditions of classical ones. And, um, but you're very welcome to make up your own phrases. And in different situations, different words or concepts are useful. And so, for example, with someone who's a sociopath, maybe what you do is uh, you wish that they um, have a change of mind. <laughs> you know, you, you wish them not, not happiness where they get manic and do terrible things, but you wish them, uh, may, you be, may you feel safe, may you be secure, may you, may you be settled in your life. I wish that they may be free of suffering, because I believe that if they're free of suffering, they'll also be behaving with less. So that might be appropriate to do it that way. And uh, in Buddhism, we would say then you're doing uh, compassion meditation. Because compassion, is, 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 uh, compassion meditation is very similar to loving-kindness meditation, but it has to do with when you encounter someone who's suffering, and we feel empathically they're suffering and want them to be free of that suffering, then we do this compassion. So there might be some people you're better off doing compassion practice with than loving-kindness. And um, so, um, so, yeah, so I think in, in each situation where you offer loving-kindness or offer your goodwill to someone, you might want to consider what's the appropriate thing to wish for them. Because the important part of this practice is not is, is, is your wishing. What can you sincerely wish in the form of goodwill, something good for this person? That's, and for different situations, it might be a little different. So someone who's, um, you know, I guess a sociopath that, uh, who acts worse when they're happy, you don't want to say, well, then be unhappy, so you can... But you, you might say, you know, you know, may you be restful or peaceful or settled or something. So my experience was actually about the neutral. And although I've done this before, I think I was really um, 
kind of speed reading through the neutrals or skimming over the neutrals. Um, and my neutral, he's very neutral. He's a very neutral person. And what I found fascinating was watching my mind really scramble to try to create meaning and context for my neutral. So I would be, you know, wishing him well, and then all of a sudden I get this little these thoughts that would bubble up, and at, f- at first they were positive, like, oh, he's probably a great dad. Or, you know, just mm. really not, and I, I don't know anything about this man. Right. I know nothing about him. And then um, that obviously didn't entertain my brain enough, so then I would, like, these thoughts would just, like, <clears throat> negative things would come up, like, just really making up stories. And, um, and so I was really working with trying to remain uh, really open and really generous and loving in, to someone who I, I really tried to maintain a complete neutrality, like not, not make up stories, not add, add things to him, to him. To him. You know, just kind of keep it neutral. And it was just fascinating. Mostly it was fascinating watching my mind try to, like, you know, like come up with all this stuff, which mm-hmm. was just distracting, really. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so, at least for me. So, 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 so that mean, part of the function of any practice in Buddhism is not necessarily to succeed in the practice, but to have the practice help you understand yourself better. So you see what your mind does in story-making. But uh, in doing, doing a neutral person... You don't have, you're not supposed to kind of try to keep them in the neutral category. Like, you better stay there. Or be neutral, stay neutral. And if I start feeling I like the person a little bit too much, I'm going to start thinking about, you know, there is a, probably a terrible dad. And Okay, that brings it back down more neutral. And the, um, you know, the, uh, to, within, uh, within reason, uh, we use our imagination, our story-making, uh, realistically, best we can, to help us get a positive regard on someone. And uh, and so you you don't have to put that part of you you don't have to leave that part of you out that, that ability of yours but uh, to use it and um, but the guideline around using your imagination is don't use your imagination in such a way that it activates and agitates the mind gets it spinning and running use it in such a way that it settles and brings the mind more peace and with a, as a as a, a regular steady loving kindness practice uh, concentrates the mind settles the mind stabilizes the mind helps the mind get quite still. And so is the imagination helping that process? Um, but yeah, I think about you know, whatever you can to think about ways that uh, give you a, a, a realistically a positive regard. Don't make up fantasies about the person, but, but you know, other ways which you can kind of... And, and what we're trying to do here in loving-kindness practice is to expand how we see, how we regard others, so that we're more likely inclined to see them uh, uh, with good intentions, have good intentions for them around them. So one more, and then I'll... Last week I had the opportunity to go to traffic court for the first time. And um, I had the doors opened at 9.30, but you weren't allowed into the courtroom till 9. And there were already dozens of people standing in line out in the cold uh, at 7.30. And I just started practicing the metta for each person and I would kind of stare at them and at first I felt uncomfortable 
but people don't stare back usually. I, people avert their gaze. And it became really interesting. And the more I did it, uh, the closer I felt to the people and the more the less I was judging them by their by the way they looked because there were clearly some people who had been in prison they had the tattoos the tears on their faces and uh, there were a lot of people there uh, who didn't have licenses and it wasn't criminal court it was civil but there were some pretty scary looking people and then a lot of people looked dismayed and worried that they couldn't afford the fines. And um, it was really interesting. And by the time I kind of got done, and I was surprised I could stand for an hour and a half. And the amazing thing was, is by getting near the end, I wanted to, like, hug every single person. <laughs> and I knew they would take me out. The security guards would take me out if I started doing that. <laughs> And it was really interesting and kind of a weird, maybe a karma thing happened is I started doing it in court too with the judge who was very severe. <laughs> and I was and I was really surprised and I just said, good morning, your honor, and I smiled at him and I had been wishing him it. And uh, when it came to my thing, he took $100 off. <laughs> he just said, he, he just said, um, he just said, I'm going to reduce it by $100. So that was, and I don't, I don't really believe in the magic of cause and effect, like bewitched, you know. But uh, I just thought it was very interesting. And what would have been a difficult situation just standing for an hour and a half wow. went by very fast. Beautiful. So that's quite significant. I've known, just a little, little footnote to that, I've known people who um, have been going in, gone in for surgery and uh, and they're laying there on the on the bed. What's it called? Jersey, the Gurney. What's it called? Gurney. Gurney. They're laying there on the gurney, and and uh, and they're then they're, they're waiting, just waiting, you know, for this thing to happen. They feel hopeless, powerless, and they there's no they nothing they can do. And they've been surgeries before where they felt kind of powerless. And then they've learned this meta practice, and they sit lay there in the uh, gurney, kind of doing loving kindness meditation, and they feel like oh, finally there's something I can do. And it made a big difference for them, uh, just laying there. So, to, you know, in terms of the, there are people who believe in the magic power of loving kindness that has magical effects on people and things like that. I, I also don't believe in the magic, but I do believe in subtle cues. And I think there are subtle routes in which we influence each other, and um, and uh, people don't even know sometimes what they're picking up from each other. They're so subtle, but they're so it could be that, you know that you, you, um, you stand a little bit more closely to people in a way that kind of makes them feel safer around you rather than you know, standing on the other side of the room. Um, or your gaze is kind of softer towards them as opposed to always averting and looking away. And that, you know, people are influenced by that. And many other things. Maybe there's a little bit more of a smile on your face rather than being kind of grumpy looking. And that people are influenced by that. So I think there's many, many unseen ways in which uh, the intention or the practice of loving-kindness uh, travels out beyond us, and many of them are, are um, you know, I think they can go quite far as the net- network goes out. Um, but I think it's all ordinary cause and effect if you really could see it. So, um, this is so welcome back. So, this is the last week of our four week class on metta meditation, loving kindness meditation. 
uh, in Buddhism, uh, we don't leave love to chance. And um, to some degree, we can also uh, help, help uh, dispose ourselves so we're more likely to feel uh, kindness, love, generosity of spirit to other people. The Buddha said uh, that um, uh, whatever a person frequently ponders and reflects upon becomes the inclination of mind. So if you're always uh, thinking about how terrible everybody is, gossiping and sniping at people, then it becomes more of a habit to do that. Uh, But if you don't do it, then regularly and over and over again, it doesn't become so much of a habit. And then, but if, but if instead you're regularly uh, thinking kindly about people, looking at people's best qualities, uh, speaking about their best qualities, then that becomes an inclination of the mind. So whatever, so what, what, what inclination of the mind would you like? What, what responsibility are you going to take for the direction your mind, mind, your mind, how you see the world, how you select out of your environment what you think is important? And uh, if uh, being friendly, if being kind, if having goodwill, if uh, having love for people is a value for you, then Buddhism says, great, and you can do something to cultivate, to develop that, to make it more an inclination of the mind. And so we have this practice called loving-kindness practice, or metta meditation. And uh, as I've said before, we always start with the people, we start, it's an intention practice, not a feeling practice. Feelings come and they support it and they're part of it. But don't expect a feeling of love or kindness, whatever. It's really uh, an intention practice where you wish or you have the, the, the desire or the aspiration that someone um, uh, be happy, safe, healthy, have, have some kind of goodness in their life, something that's good. Uh, so sometimes it's translated as goodwill uh, for other people. And we usually start with the people it's easiest to do it towards. And uh, so in ancient Buddhism, they thought it was the self. So they start there. Um, but you don't have to start with yourself you can, if that's not easy. But, uh, and the idea is to, is to find the intention of goodwill to that easy person. And, um, and while you're thinking about the person or holding the person in your heart, then uh, give word, give expression to that intention in a calm, relaxed, meditative way, silently, uh, as a way of kind of nourishing or supporting or watering the seeds of that intention, letting it grow. In the process of doing that, if warm, loving feelings of some kind uh, bubble up, if you become happier as the process goes along, then uh, let that uh, grow and develop and, and spread throughout your being. It's been pointed out often enough, I think, that um, when people uh, uh, stroke their cats, who is it that's benefiting? <laughs> Uh, some you know the cat starts purring perhaps, but people you know you, most people don't do it just because the cat purrs. <laughs> you know it feels really nice. It's something very nourishing for the person who's doing the petting. That kind of contact. I have a, I know someone who uh, volunteers at the Oak, at the Children's Hospital in Oakland, and um, took a while before he was graduated to be able to do, do, do this kind of volunteer work. But his work is uh, he goes in, I think at least once a week for several hours. And um, he holds a premature babies because it's very important that premature babies get held and have that physical contact with people. So she, he goes and just holds them, you know, and it's very, very moving for him. And it's been very deeply, he's kind of an analytical person, kind of in his head a lot. 
And this has really softened and opened his heart dramatically. And just, you know, you kind of, you know, you take care of a baby. And, and many people find that, right? So that, uh, that somehow holding a baby, who benefits? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's sometimes in both ways. You know, the, hopefully the baby, hopefully the cat benefits. But we, we do also. And I think that points to the, for me, the magic, <laughs> or points to, I think, what's very, very uh, unique about human relationships is the degree to which they're mutual. We mutually affect each other. And, uh, and, uh, but also the way we relate to other people uh, 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 somehow or other also affects us. So if we hate someone, really angry on someone, uh, we won't want them to know how angry we are because we're going to really give it to them. Maybe we succeed in giving it to them and really intimidating them or something. But the cost on us is great. And so... We feel a lot of, there's a lot of tension, a lot of stress that goes into our system and our muscles and our mind and our heart. And if you really uh, pay attention to the cost of being angry, you probably realize that it's costing you much more than um, it's costing them. <laughs> and uh, why would you do it if you see the cost? Uh, so there's, it affects us. Same thing with, with kindness, with love, with friendliness. Uh, we might say it's all for the other person's sake. But while we're being kind to someone else, uh, it changes who we are. And it softens us, it relaxes people. Uh, there's an expression, uh, uh, approach and soothe, that uh, as people, we approach people who are suffering with kindness and goodwill and compassion, there's, uh, there's a biological system in place that actually supports a person relaxing, softening, coming forward in a soothing way. Uh, heart rate changes, the blood uh, uh, rate changes, um, a lot of things change physiologically when we enter into this kind of kind, loving kind of uh, mode. So who benefits? And we benefit as well. It's a mutual benefit system. So we benefit as well. And, um, and it's possible to uh, offer uh, our kindness to someone else and feel some well-being because of that. Feel some happiness, some lightness, some joy, some relaxation because of that. And so as we do the loving-kindness practice, um, uh, that feedback system there. We, we wish someone well, but to offer it cleanly from a place deep in our hearts, then um, it also begins to kind of affect us. It changes us. It changes us physiologically, and uh, it bubbles up, you know, delight and joy, perhaps. And, but it also, uh, more important than how we feel, um, because Buddhism doesn't put such a big emphasis on how we feel, as some people here in the modern West really focus on how I feel is so important. Feeling is important, but much more important in Buddhist spirituality is our intention, the aspiration that we have, because that has much longer-term value. Your feelings come and go, but if you have, a, if your life is, uh, your orientation in life is is founded on intention, certain intentions, those intentions then will carry you into many different situations, and you'll find out how to apply them. So. Um, so as we do the loving-kindness practice, some people will find that uh, they feel better because of it. And that's one of the reasons why it's done, is to, to soften the heart, relax the body, um, settle us in some beautiful way. Um, so today's topic is um, loving-kindness for difficult people. So the categories we've done so far, we've done four categories. We've done self, the benefactor, the friend, and the neutral person. 
And so today, I'll introduce you to the, what's called the difficult person. In the ancient Buddhist texts, they don't use the word difficult person, they say enemy. And, uh, and, uh, but here in the modern West, the most Western Dharma teachers don't use the word enemy, they use the difficult people. People, who, people for whom uh, uh, you don't like, you have aversion to, you, you, uh, maybe people who are hostile to you, people who are just kind of very disagreeable to be around, it's very difficult to feel any kindness towards them. So anybody for whom it's difficult to feel friendliness or kindness towards is your difficult person. It says in the ancient texts that if you have if, if you have no enemies, then you don't have to do this category. <laughs> so if you have no difficult people in your life, then uh, you don't have to do this. You can skip this and go home early if you like. <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, not a few people I've known have used politicians as their difficult people, <laughs> particular ones. Depending where you are in the political persuasion, you know, it depends which direction you've... And um, now, when we talk about uh, difficult people, uh, uh, it, uh, it's a chance to talk a little bit more uh, precisely, perhaps, or in a nuanced way, about this word, metta. So it's M-E-T-T-A, is the... Indian word that's usually translated as loving kindness. I like the word a lot, um, and uh, I like the idea of the word kindness a lot. But it implies maybe a little bit. Unfortunately, you're supposed to be kind all the time, and uh, and perhaps that's not really at the forefront of what needs to happen to some people. Uh, there are people whom maybe you don't like, and it, and you're not expected to start liking them but you can have goodwill for them. You can wish them well. You can have well-wishing for them. Um, may you, so the Buddha gave an example, not of people, but with snakes and scorpions, where he taught this loving-kindness practice to be used to snakes and scorpions. And he says, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be whatever else he said. And then he said, and then when they finished doing those things, he said, and now go away. <laughs> <laughs> And um, and so, so you know, um, so some people it's too high of a hurdle to do loving kindness practice if you think you're supposed to like the people, or you're supposed to kind of find some way to be kind and sweet to them. Um, they don't have to know that you're doing the practice, and which makes it a lot easier because you know why you know then if if we, if, we, if we think they're going to know that we're doing it for them then we, we feel embarrassed or upset or it doesn't seem fair or they're going to take advantages of us or you know, something. But this can be a very private practice. And maybe you're the one who's to benefit the most. You're trying to overcome the ways in which your heart is closed or hostile. And, um, and it doesn't have to change anything in your real-world relationships. If it's a difficult person because they really are difficult and it's you know, really difficult to hang out with them and you'd rather not be close to them, uh, you could do your loving kindness to them from far away <laughs> and, uh, and open your heart and make sure your heart is not close to them. Um, but you don't have to then go invite them in for tea. Uh, so sometimes the word loving kindness doesn't quite capture the right nuance here. And perhaps the word goodwill, if, uh, it works better. That you're trying to have goodwill to, even to people you don't like. Or have goodwill to people who you'd rather not have much contact with but you at least want to have that goodwill. 
And um, so, I, for example, I've, I've had people who I didn't really care for very much, didn't like very much, and um, mostly I chose not to spend time with them. But if there was an opportunity to talk about them to other people, like, you know, we, you know we talk, for some reason we had business to take care of, it involved talking about that person, uh, and then uh, I could feel my goodwill in the forefront, and then I'll try to talk in ways that uh, expresses kindness or goodwill or well-wishing for them. I'll speak about the, you know, speak to, speak about them in nice ways so other people think about them nicely. And, and you know, it's, somehow there's a. I, I don't go kind of, kind of complain about them and get upset about them and say, you know, can you believe what this person did? And uh, I say, oh, you know, the, um, um, you know, the person's. You know, oh, that person. Oh, that person's really kind to his to his kids. You know, and um, and I don't say all the other things. Because it's unnecessary, and because I, th- I believe that I, you know, I do feel some goodwill, but I, that doesn't doesn't translate to you know wanting to be cl- close to them. <laughs> Make some sense. And so, for some people, this makes it a lot easier to do this practice towards the difficult people. In doing doing it towards difficult people, um, uh, <laughs> uh, you want to do it after you've done it to others. You know these other categories to where it's easy. So you get some, some, you open up, your goodwill is there, you have some flow of kindness, of love going. And then, you only do it to the people that you, to the difficult people, when you want to. You're under no obligation to do it. And it isn't like, you. this is a manual, like, okay, I've done, you know, five minutes on this cell, five minutes on benefactor and friend, and five minutes on neutral people, and now, you know, there's five minutes left in my meditation, so now I'll do the last category. And I'm supposed to, because it's supposed to do all five categories. And that's why I'll do it. I think it's, it doesn't, don't do it for that reason. Only do it when you feel ready, because you want to have, you would like to have feelings of goodwill, and gener- generous kind of feelings, for someone who's difficult in your life. Um, and then remember that wanting to having a desire for goodwill towards that person is different than having it. And so don't confuse the two. Because if you confuse the two, then you might think, oh, I can't do it. But simply saying, yeah, it would, it would be really good if someday I could find in my, in my heart some feeling of, of friendliness or generosity of spirit to this person. I wish that could happen. And let's see now how that can happen. Let's work towards that. So, but if you don't feel like some inkling of a desire to do that, maybe you shouldn't do it at all. Just stay with the neutral people, stay with the other people, until at some point, you, sooner or later, I believe, if you do this practice long enough, you'll come across a difficult person. You say, you'll, you'll occur to you, you know, I would like to generate more kindness or goodwill to this person. And then, but, but uh, the suggestion is don't start with really difficult, difficult people. <laughs> uh, start with really mildly difficult. So you begin stretching yourself and exploring the territory just a little bit um, and, uh, and finding out, you know, what it takes. And one, one option is to choose a, someone who might even be a good friend so you, so you already have a lot of good feelings for and kindness, usually. But, you know, last you know, last Monday they said this mean thing to you. 
And so you're still you know, smarting from that and feel like but they've become a difficult person. And then perhaps you could begin kind of using them as your difficult person, but then it's easier to begin stretching and opening up because you have a backlog of, or background of goodwill already there. Or maybe it's someone who's more or less a neutral person in your life, someone you don't know very well, but um, you know, maybe it's your mail carrier who you see every day maybe, but never have any contact with, you don't know anything about. But um, uh, recently, they just didn't put the letters in the mailbox properly. So they were sticking out of this flap or something and you know, they fell on the ground, didn't see it. And, and so you feel, you know, how could they do that? And you feel a little bit irritated. And so that's your difficult person. It's, not, it's a pretty mild thing. So it's easier then to begin uh, working the edges. Of what, would it, what would it take? How do I regard this person? What do I have to do inside of me? What do I have to relax with me? What are the attitudes I have to let go of or ch- change of heart that I need to have? And then, and then slowly begin working up to the people who are most difficult. And one of the amazing capacities that human beings have is to, um, is to love our enemies, to love people who have caused tremendous harm in our lives, to have a profound process of forgiveness going on, a profound process of, of uh, opening up and seeing them. And, um, and um, you know, some of, some of these events where people have this change of heart towards others are quite phenomenal. People who, um, you know, have forgiven and, and offer their tremendous uh, help and support to um, uh, people who have murdered a family member. I met when I was in San Quentin with uh, lifers, and I was there in April, and, uh, and a violence prevention program at San Quentin for people who some of them had been there for almost 40 years. And most of them had been in, most of the people we talked to are people who had been involved in murder or attempted murder. And um, it was quite something to watch. They were in a violence prevention program and meditation program. And it was remarkable to see how much they had transformed themselves. And, um, and uh, you know, and they had also, they had also the same, I didn't see this, but they had the same program. They had a victim, I don't know what it's called, victim, what do you call it? Reconciliation. Yeah, a vic, victim perpetrator reconciliation, where victims and perpetrators meet each other. And they don't at San Quentin have the actual people who did the crimes with each other meet, but they have people who had similar, victims of similar crimes meet prisoners who've done the crime like that. And they meet, and it's quite something. Uh, to meet and uh, you know they tell stories of how, what happens there and and the change of heart that goes on. So I'm sure you've you've you encountered various places uh, situations where people do amazing things, and um, uh, it's hard to do. And sometimes it's uh, it's only really possible when you find yourself in really extreme, unimaginable situations that that part of you is called forth. But the practice of loving-kindness is pointing in that direction. How do we um, expand, expand our goodwill, a generous spirit, friendliness, towards people for whom uh, it's very, very, very hard to do? M- remember, you've come to a Buddhist center, a religious center, and religions of all stripes um, put a very high standard about how thoroughly a human person can be transformed and changed. And um, so if your religion doesn't challenge you, it's probably not doing its job. 
So here, this is one place where you're being challenged. You know, look a little bit. Can you open to these people as well, to difficult people? And what does it take? So it's a very, it's a, it's a slow process. It can be very profound, very, very uh, trying to open up to difficult people, to include them, and uh, don't expect it to be easy all the time. Um, and sometimes it's a real wrestling match inside, where a lot of doubt, a lot of anger, a lot of criticism, a lot of, um, uh, you know. A lot of lot of issues, a lot of things come up to the surface as we're trying to do it to difficult people. And so it might take a long time with one individual person to really find a way to that. Don't feel bad that it's difficult. Uh, feel really good that you're wrestling. It's really a great thing to be able to do and be engaged in that process. That makes sense? So... Let's do a, some meditation. And if you'd like to stand uh, and stretch, shake out as you see fit. So um, for this meditation, we'll start with ourselves and then go through some of the categories and then uh, inch our way into a little bit uh, the difficult people. And um, maybe it's nice before we actually start meditating, maybe with your eyes closed or open, just take a, a few moments here to consider or to find uh, a mildly difficult person that you might want to um, include here or bring in to your life right now. It could be someone you hardly know. It could be someone, you know, anything. Someone's pretty mildly, but... And then kind of like just to, you know, file away that person, that name, so it's handy in a a little while. So, gently close your eyes. And begin by feeling your body here. Feel your body on the chair or your cushion. Feel a kind of, feel a global awareness of what's going on in your body now, how your body feels at this time in life, this time of day. And see if you can be easy about how you're feeling. If you're feeling comfortable, uncomfortable, however you're feeling, be easy about it. And then within the body, as part of the body, take a few long, slow, deep breaths. As you breathe in, perhaps you can feel like you're massaging yourself from the inside. As you breathe out, relax, maybe even soothe yourself on the exhale. 
then letting your breath return to normal. Breathe in a simple way. And as you exhale, see if you can soften, relax your shoulders. Relax the muscles of your face. Perhaps relax your belly. And that simple relaxation is the beginning of feeling goodwill toward yourself, taking care of yourself. We say in Buddhism that you are as worthy and an appropriate recipient of your love as any other person is in this world. There's an equality. That says that it's beautiful, appropriate for you to see yourself with kind regard. To have a generosity of heart towards yourself. Now, you might see if you can remember some time in your life where you had some simple, easy happiness. A happy time. Bring back the memory of that time, the sights, the smells, the sounds. If you can visualize, maybe visualize the scene, or just simply think about the situation, the happiness, and see if you can remember what it felt like to be happy. The physical sense of well-being or happiness. Feel the places in your body that get activated when you were happy that way. And then letting go of the memories and being here in this body being close, being in touch with, being aware of these areas of your body, of your being, that is capable of happiness. And then consider 
how much how wonderful it would be if this could be a more regular part of your life, this happiness. And that you wish it for yourself. You wish it without expectation or demand, but just a simple wish, may it be so, may I be happy. And that wish for your own happiness and well-being. See if you can give voice to it silently by repeating these phrases that I'll say out loud. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May I be at ease. And as you repeat these phrases again, as you say the last word, see if you can Maybe say it in the exhale if it's easy. But as you say it, let something in your body relax and open. Shoulders, chest, heart. Open up to the meaning behind each of the last words. May I be happy. And then bring to mind either a benefactor or a friend, someone for whom it's easy for you to have goodwill for. Someone for whom you have a 
easy time thinking about how wonderful it would be if they could really be happy. How wonderful it would be if they could thrive and be peaceful. Did you really wish for this person to have it? Something you would even help make happen if you could? And keeping this person in keeping this person in mind. Repeat the following. May you be happy. May you be at ease. And we'll do it one more time for this person. And as you come and stand with each phrase, see if something inside of you can soften or relax or open towards this person. May you be happy. May you be healthy. bring to mind that mildly difficult person and take your time with it. First kind of get a real sense of the person's presence maybe by visualizing them or remembering kind of felt sense was like to be with them or just there's a memory of being them with them. Whatever you can to make them come a little more vivid for you here.
And then as you consider them, can you find some wish inside of you, some aspiration, desire, or recognition that it would be a good thing if this person could be happy? It would be a good thing if this person could be peaceful, safe, How might you regard or look on this person so that you have some goodwill in their direction? And then recognizing or finding these, this wish for their well-being. Repeat these phrases. and see if something can open or relax or soften in you towards them as you say them. May you be happy. May you be safe. Perhaps considering that this person is has many different sides to his or her life. The person's had his or her struggles and suffering, joys and successes. People who loved them and people who didn't. This person has a capacity for happiness. And then see if you can open to them with these words. May you be happy. May you be safe. healthy.
And then we'll say it one more time. And then each time you say it, see if you can soften some tension or holding that you have in relationship to this person. Some way in which maybe you keep yourself braced or held back. Some way in which perhaps you're not really willing to see them completely. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be at ease. Then to end this sitting, take a deep breath or two and let go of all the thoughts, concerns you might have. Come back into your breathing and ride on your breathing, ride on your inhales and exhales. And then when you're ready, you can open your eyes.
So the two most common purposes for doing this loving-kindness practice are first, to cultivate more goodwill. Goodwill here, the heart of it is an intention, not a feeling. So a wish of goodwill, wishing someone well, well well-wishing. And the second purpose is um, to help the mind get concentrated, calm, steadied, stable. One, one is a opening to loving-kindness, the other is using loving-kindness practice as a way of developing concentration. The two are not opposed to each other, uh, or, you know, they can, they can be done together, or separately, those two intent, or kind of, it's possible to just want to focus on the loving-kindness aspect. Maybe forgiveness needs to happen, maybe some opening, some working through something needs to happen so you can really be friendly to someone. You want to have, have open your heart in some more, more fuller way. So that's all you want. You don't care about concentration. You just want to do some dis- goodwill. When you do it that only for that purpose, uh, some people find it really helpful to be creative about it. You use their own phrases, change the phrases a lot, sing the tune, sing it as a tune. You know, even you know anything, anything at all that helps you uh, visualize the person. You know, you can be quite creative. You know, there's no, there's, you don't think of it. This is a kind of you know, a fixed way of doing this practice. This is the way Gil said it. I have to do it that way. It's just, you know, you can just use your imagination, whatever helps you in cultivating that goodwill. If what you want to do is develop concentration, then you, want, then you don't want to be so creative because that the creativity of changing and doing all this stuff keeps the mind more active and involved. And so what you want to do then is you want to keep it really simple. Maybe use the same phrases over and over again. Usually we say four phrases. We can even be just one phrase. But just say those f- phrases over and over again because the repetition, it's kind of like a mantra. You repeat something over and over again. It's not a mantra, but it's like the same function. Where you say the same thing and so you gather yourself, you begin focusing or stabilizing yourself on the same thing over and over and over again. You have like a focal point. These, that person, these phrases. And, and you just kind of keep a steady, even pace. Just going, going, going. You, your mind gets distracted, you come back and do it again. You stay... And that helps the mind get stable and settled. If um, You can do both purposes at the same time. And some people find that very effective. You can just keep it very simple and steady and very simple, steady practice around four phrases. And uh, not only does it develop some calm and concentration, but that calm and concentration helps open up your heart even further. It relaxes something and lets the, 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 the kindness flow more fully. Um, so that's a little bit um, I want to say for now but now after having done this meditation do you have any comments or questions about especially this uh, any of any part of it at all but especially the part about the difficult person you like to ask or say a little bit how that, what that was like for you because I wasn't inside of you so I don't know how it was easy if it was difficult Revealing. Right, well, um, so, what was my experience? Um, You said, well, the first thing I thought was, um, often the difficult person is a person with difficulties. 
I sort of suddenly realize that the things that you find difficult are that they are having difficulty in some way. And, um, and, and that was definitely the case with this person, the person I was thinking of. And then um, you said um, something about being generous. And then that was it. The floodgates opened, <laughs> quite literally, and, um, and still are opening, actually. <laughs> when I thought, no, I haven't been very generous to this person. And that was the pain. The pain was um, not so much them being difficult, uh-huh. but me not being generous to them. Mm. And, um, and it was quite overwhelming. And I wasn't expecting it because I didn't go out to pick a difficult, difficult person. You know, I, went out, I picked someone I thought, actually I picked my brother for whom I have a ton of goodwill. Yeah. Um, but on something specific, I realized I hadn't been being generous and that that had caused me, was obviously causing, causing me some difficulty. Mm-hmm. So that was my experience Wonderful. of it. So one of the options you have if these strong floodgates open oh. up and other emotions come is that might be a time to stop doing the metta practice, loving-kindness practice, and, and because those feelings need some time in the air, in, in, the, in the sun. They need to be seen and be able to move through you. And so just stop it for a while and let, let it come, let it come, let it come until it's settled enough and you feel ready to go on. All right, great, thank you. Someone else? I used to, uh, one of my difficult people uh, sometimes was the person who was doing the guided loving-kindness meditation. (laughs) I don't know, can't they be quiet? (laughs) Um, Well, so sometimes you want to wish someone well and, you know, like loving-kindness, but if uh, that person is very negative like you like when you're around them you can feel how negative they are and how you know, all, uh, negative yes so so you know like a kind of a you, that kind of affect me you know i become negative too so it's just very hard sometimes think about like what is the good even if i wish them well they still going to think the worst the situation right, right. so the um Remember, it's, it's a, it's just, you can consider it a private practice. It's just something you do in your heart towards them. It's really for you. And what, what you do when you're in their presence could be a whole different thing. If you feel like it's unhealthy for you to be around the person, you might not be around the person. Or it might be that you're cautious of how you're with them. Maybe uh, you don't say much. You only talk about the weather or something. Um, you have to have some street smarts about how to, how to be with the difficult people. Um, and so don't, uh, doing loving kindness doesn't translate to becoming all sweet and loving and just, you know, just, you know, uh, and just uh, be a pushover for whatever they want. You can be quite firm and strong and wish them, uh, you know, like they talk about tough love, right? You can have all the goodwill in the world for them and say, no, <laughs> you can't do that. I wish you well. I really wish you well, but you can't come to my house if you're going to behave that way. So I don't know if that helps. That kind of makes me think of a question that I have, which is um, when choosing the difficult person, I was thinking it might be helpful at this stage because it's new to think of somebody who hasn't really hurt me. And I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about the difference between somebody who's just a difficult person that you might have an aversion toward, um, maybe even for petty reasons, and as opposed to somebody that you actually has hurt you and that you have 
they're a difficult person because of that. Yeah, yeah. So that's more the enemy category. Someone has hostility towards you or hurt you in some way. Uh, it's different. It can be harder when you feel the hostility from someone. Um, and it takes a different consideration. Uh, it might, one of the things you might want to consider is, are you safe now? Is it over? Or do you feel like now in the future can you take care of yourself? And perhaps, it's, to make it realistic, maybe you need to actually consider a little bit, okay, how are you going to take care of yourself properly if you, if, you know, in the future? Can you say no? Can you get help or whatever? Uh, so you feel, then you feel maybe it's easier, more, more likely that you want to wish them well if you've taken care of yourself. That's one possibility. Another thing that uh, uh, is to reflect on, um, uh, on how much suffering that person has. If people are being hostile, be hostile is a, is a is a symptom of suffering, is an expression of suffering. Um, when I was in San Quentin, with these prisoners, they had a saying there. They said, um, uh, "They said, um, uh, hurt people hurt, healed people heal." And so the idea, you know, oh, well, if they're hurting me, I bet they're hurting a lot. And some people find that that reflection makes a big difference to understand what's behind them. And, um, so that helps sometimes with hostile people. So those are things that occur to me at the moment. Yes? Um, I recently um, worked for a long time with a lot of hostility from someone I was close to and... Um, I was so anxious about our interactions that um, I was visiting with her and um, she was suffering uh, unimaginable um, pain and loss. So I was uh, really, like you said, in an extreme situation where I found myself really desiring not to add any more pain to her suffering. And I was so anxious that I, I did a lot of a lot of work with that, but I and um, on the way down, I drove down to see her in Southern California, and so I listened to like you know ten hours of loving kindness meditation. <laughs> I'm not joking; it was like every second, you know, preparing, and and I have to say that you know the cause and effect was truly in place because I was um, shocked at how much I was able to be. Um, you know, not uh, tense and open and uh, and really soften mm-hmm. and really be present for whatever needed to occur. Beautiful. So what degree was it because that 10 hours helped you be more, have more goodwill? And how much was it because the 10 hours of kind of like meditation, doing that over and over again, uh, kept your anxiety and, and stuff at bay and you actually entered the situation much calmer? Oh, oh I think the 10 hours of, of listening to... Uh, Pema children, you know, be calm and present, and also helped. Absolutely, was uh, I mean they were I, I I can't separate them, but you know yes, it was it was great, it was wonderful, you know, it was a wonderful experience listening to it too. But yeah, so it was it was um, transformative, very transformative to have that occur. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, thank you. Up here on the stage. I can understand the loving kindness and its positive effects um, very much, and I believe in it. But when it comes to politics and to um, to people 
leaders uh-huh. that imprison people, kill people, they do so much injustice. And if you specifically, if you're in that particular country, if you're one of those people who are suffering, sometimes it's easier if you're not in a condition but if, or in this situation. But if you're in that situation, how do you make a change happen without pick, picking up a weapon and actually go against them? When you see that, you know, without really, you know, I, how can you be peacefully, like, overthrow a, a government that's killing your people? I mean, you know, that's, you know, in specific countries, not here, but there's so much, so much oppression, you know, the governments are, right. you know, imprisoning people, they're taking their rights away. How can you peacefully survive when they use so much, you know, weaponry, they, they're just, you know, it's, I know it's a, you know... You have to be willing to die. But without... <laughs> if, you, if that's what you want to do, is to overcome a regime peacefully, you can't do that unless you're willing to die. But that's what I'm saying. It's hard to, to you know, how does, um, how does one um, uh, become non- stay nonviolent in, in a situation like right, that? So you have to understand, you have to be, uh, do a lot of practice. Most people have to do a lot of practice First, you have to find out, do you really want to do that? Is that really a motivation for you? Do you want to be an effective uh, peacemaker, nonviolent, you know, struggle? And then you have to prepare yourself. Martin Luther King, when he was pre- the civil rights movement, they were preparing people for their non-civil disobedience they did. They, they, they prepared people. They didn't just like, you know, say, you know, hey, come on down. <laughs> uh, let's, let's do this thing. They, they prepared people and they had trainings for people. And so by the time they went and did the demonstration where there was going to be violence, they were prepared in their hearts and their minds and in their bodies of what to do and how to be. So it, it takes a lot of preparation. And uh, it might take, uh, you know, sometimes years to do that real work of understanding yourself really well, to overcome your own fears, um, uh, uh, including the fear of dying. Because if you're going to do that kind of level of work, you have to be ready to put your life on the line. And, um, and so to deal with that deep fear is very important. Your anger, dealing with that, working through that is very important. There's a lot of things to work through. Um, and then also you need to learn some street smarts. Um, uh, I have a, a four-volume book on techniques of civil disobedience, nonviolent resistance. And it's, there's a whole science to it. There are university professors who are specialized in this topic. You can get trainings, you know, big trainings. And to assume that you can just do this but, you know, just because it's a good idea is naive. And uh, so to learn all the techniques and ways of doing this is important. And then to, uh, uh, to, to see that there's been examples in the world of people who have done it. Um, I, I, you know, there's been, uh, in the 20th century, there were some amazing examples of uh, nonviolent resistance to uh, terrible oppression that had a big effect. Um, and uh, Martin Luther King was one. There was terrible oppression in this country here. And what the civil rights movement did was phenomenal. And it, it cost people, there were a lot of people who lost their lives in the process. But um, if they'd been in a violent struggle, a lot more people would have lost their lives. The fact that they're, you know, and that, um, um, you know, Mahatma Gandhi was a big example. A lot of examples of people who, uh, you know, right now one of the great examples is uh, Dalai Lama, who is working, working very hard to help the Tibetan people uh, without having any uh, uh, anger or, or hostility um, towards the Chinese. And he, but he calls them the enemy, doesn't he? He says, my friend, the enemy. So he recognizes there's a struggle going on, but he still you know, opens them as friends to have a compassion there. And uh, so what you ask is an important question. It's, and we shouldn't assume that it's easy. 
this is just a simple introductory course. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing up the advanced course. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're in that country and you have no choice but being in that country as a person. I'm not yeah. there, but I know of yeah. people yeah, who yeah. are. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a hard question. It's also a situational question. I mean, there's been people who have done amazing things, um, uh, but uh, didn't plan it. Cause and condition came together, and you know, this was a time to do something, and uh, and then some of them did amazing things, and some of them got squashed in the process, and um, it's hard. It's a hard. It's hard to know. Um, but I'm, I myself am very inspired by the potential of nonviolent um, resistance, civil disobedience, and um, I think in the bigger picture of things, it has a much more positive effect than any other way. So we have a few more minutes. And, um, and uh, I guess we won't do another, <coughs> another meditation to run out of time. Um, but I thought that, um, I'd like to tell you. What the, uh, so now we've done these five categories. And uh, that could keep you busy for a while. And you can just run through them. You can do different people for these categories. And then at some point... When you've done, when you've kind of established yourself to some ability to do it with, with uh, the difficult people, the enemy, then the practice is you visualize all five people together. Yourself, the benefactor, the friend, the neutral person, and the enemy. And you have them all kind of sitting together in a room and, you know, lined up from the panel, whatever, whatever way you like to see it. And then see if you can uh, generate an equal amount of goodwill for each one. So that's equal. So it's not like you have preference for one over the other. So your, your generosity of spirit is equal to both. Now, it's not a matter of diminishing it for some to make it equal. Uh, the idea is to take your, your, the really good, beautiful goodwill you have for the people you care for the most and then universalize it, expand it to, so everybody becomes your family, everybody becomes your friend. And what does that take? So that's another whole process to do that. Then, once a person's done that, then the next step is to begin uh, 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 doing it in, in more generally, in generalized forms. So until now, it's been for specific people. And then we start doing it more generally to categories of people. And so there are two general directions this can take. It can go, um, a particular category can be all women, all men, all children, all my teachers, all my benefactors, all my, you know, just, just all kinds of categories. And just do with these different categories. And, um, and, uh, but it only makes sense to do it if you really have that sense of goodwill already established on individuals. So it's not just this kind of empty idealism. A lot of people have, you know, like, oh, you know, it's easy to love humanity in the abstract. Well, I love everyone, just as long as I don't have to do anything, as long as I don't have to do anything with them. They stay far away. So you, 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 in order to be real, you have to really kind of cultivate it first on real people, but then begin using these categories. And go- then the other way route is, um, is rather than individual categories, you do it in, uh, in directions or, 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 or geographically. So, say, so for example, you might do first, may I be happy? Then may all the people in this room be happy. Wouldn't that be great if all of us were just happy and felt safe and comfortable with each other and friendly? And Wouldn't that be great? Yes. And then what... Then now all the people on this block, 
and all the people in Redwood City. And then you kind of you do this kind of visualization of the sense. You focus. You keep your concentration kind of geographically on the sense, expanding sense. The mind gets bigger and bigger. It's like the awareness spreads out, and and, and becomes like a bubble that opens up and encompasses or envelops greater and greater communities. So then the whole peninsula, and then California, and then the North America, and then um, you know the globe. That's another way. Expand it outward that way. And some people get very spacious, very open. And that, that way of doing it, and another way people do it is they do it directionally. And they all, everyone who lives in the West, <laughs> be happy. And there's kind of this directional feeling, like that whole world of the West kind of opens up and kind of in the heart or in the mind. Kind of, and may everybody in the North and the East and the South and everybody above, all these planes going above, and everybody below, and so the idea is to expand and open up this kind of boundless quality of the mind until at some point it, the loving-kindness is described as being boundless. It has no boundaries to it. I like to think of it as being objectless. It just kind of radiates out from us without any object, without any limit. It just has a boundless feeling. It doesn't seem like it has any limit to how far it goes out. And it becomes like a light bulb that just kind of radiates boundlessly out in all directions. Your love is just open and wide and flowing, flowing. You're stable and subtle in it. It's not something you think about. It's not like you have to generate good reasons to love someone. It's just the nature of the heart, the state of the heart, when it's really when that love is really well established, radiates in the same way. Perhaps I don't know. Some people feel if they really do some really good exercise, and they finish the exercise, and they feel like all the blood is rushing, and they feel kind of glowing and warm and energized for a while, it just kind of radiates out. So the same thing with that love, that beautiful feeling, it can radiate and flow from us and just kind of becomes a state of being rather than, you know, something that's directed in any direction or any person. And um, in, the, in, the, in classical Buddhism, the kind of aim of strong loving-kindness meditation is to get to that place where the loving-kindness is boundless, where the, your whole state of mind, your whole state of being is saturated, permeated with a, a kind of a sense of loving-kindness. And it's a beautiful thing. And if you stabilize in that, imagine that. You're not distracted from love. So um, it's a beautiful practice to do. It's a profound practice to do. It's helpful for everyone, yourself and others, to do it. Uh, it takes a lot of uh, strength to do it. It's not, it's not for wimps. It's, a, it's a, actually, a, they talk about the force of kindness, the strength of kindness, uh, or goodwill that that happens, and um, and um, it's one of the beautiful practices. It's said to complement in our tradition. It complements mindfulness practice, and some people will begin any session of mindfulness meditation with a few minutes of loving kindness meditation, so that when they start doing loving uh, the mindfulness, there's more of a feeling of being friendly to the experience and to yourself as you do it, uh, because some people, they're you know they're you know, their, their software is programmed to do the opposite. And so it's nice to kind of reset it. So when you do meditation, it's kind of goodwill going on rather than ill will. And, um, and some people really get into this practice. They find it purifies or resolves deep issues within them. It finds very, very powerful, very difficult and struggle to really work through something. Some people find it's, it's, they can't really do meditation unless they first do loving kindness because they're so, they're so self-critical. They're so angry or upset with themselves that only by trying to generate goodwill toward themselves can they have any hope of doing any kind of meditation 
other kind of meditation. And some people just find it so wonderful. They don't need a reason why. They just to do it. I mean, why should you have a reason to love, right? <laughs> and um, and uh, some people make this their primary practice, uh, what they do. And, um, and in our tradition, we teach uh, retreats on loving kindness. And uh, we have day-longs that I see occasionally that we do. And, uh, but at Spirit Rock and other places, they do um, uh, seven-day retreats. So imagine spending seven days where this is all you're focusing on, is loving kindness, together with a room of people who are doing the same thing. It's a phenomenal thing. It's really amazing. And, um, and so if you get that bug, that interest inclination, you might consider following through on this and, and making it a, a, a regular part of your life, of your practice. And I want to uh, thank you. I apologize if this whole course seemed like it went very fast. Maybe we should have done an eight-week course or an, or an eight-year course <laughs> to really get a sense of it. But I thank you for your interest and your willingness to come. It's a beautiful thing that people are interested in this. And uh, so I'm very grateful for all of you. And um, on behalf of IMC also, uh, especially if you're new to IMC, uh, please feel free to come here anytime. Uh, feel welcome. There's no membership here, um, except uh, anybody's a member who wants to be. And some people don't like to be members, so they're very welcome too. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and also, you know, if whatever support, financial support you offer IMC or to the teachers like me, uh, we're all very grateful for that as well. So thank you, and um, I wish you well. <laughs> <laughs>